Welcome to the Volusi Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy Uncle Peter. He will say words at you. So I have been growing my annual beard, and the beard includes a mustache. And, if I, and as I've mentioned in several previous podcasts, I often suffer from allergies. And I suddenly started wondering, the addition of a mustache to my face, would that make allergies better or exasperate the problem? Because... It could act as a filter. If the hair was long enough or thick enough or maybe something like that, it could catch the allergens before they actually enter my nose and therefore enter my bloodstream, making my allergy symptoms better or at least less severe. But alternatively, the addition of a mustache could catch the allergens and keep them closer to my nose, thus ensuring that the allergens then do go into my nose as I breathe in and actually get into my bloodstream, thus worsening my allergy symptoms. Now, there are going to be people in the world who immediately say, well, having a mustache will have no difference as to whether or not your allergy symptoms get better or worse because it's not relevant. But the problem there I have is that what we are doing is creating a new state in addition to my normal face features, thus making a change. And a change must have some sort of result, be it positive or negative. Now, the only problem I have right now is I can't really test it because uh, I don't know when my allergies are going to be better or worse. So if I grow a mustache and my allergies get better, that might be because there are just less allergies in the air around me or I've vacuumed my room or everything's just cleaner so that I just have less effect and it has nothing to do with the mustache. And also I could shave and clean at the same time, which would actually be a really normal thing to have happen. I wash and I shave and then I feel, oh, I should clean the house as well. Thus lowering the symptoms, the results of allergies in my life. So I'm trying to figure out a way to test my theory. And one of the things I came up with was shaving half my mustache. But really the problem is your nostrils are linked because you could, if they were separate, shave one half of your mustache and keep the other half and then see if one side is more affected by allergies than the other. But that's not how your sinuses work. They're all a system, a network in your head. They're all connected. So that's not going to work. So really, I have no solution. But if there is a scientist out there who listens to Velocity Podcast, and I know everyone who does listen to this podcast has a scientific bent, has a skeptical mind, is the kind of person who likes to think through problems. If you have some way of testing this or have an idea to test it, please let me know. I am not going to force myself into allergy attacks. I can tell you that right now. I'm not willing to suffer for science in that way, but I am willing to take my natural condition and make small alterations and record the results. So if you come up with an experiment and send it to me, I'm willing to give it a shot. Okay, Cora question. How do I impress a Japanese person? And my first thought 
is actually the Japanese part of that question is kind of irrelevant. It's how do I impress a person? Because impressing people is actually going to be, despite cultural differences, fairly universal. And really, just be a good person and try your best and try to be aware of cultural norms. And I think you're actually going to impress a lot of people. I have lived in multiple countries and I have found I've gotten consistent compliments in those countries because I have tried to adapt and follow their cultural traditions and be respectful of them. And so I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. When I was in Korea, I was told by a man, you might be a Western person, but you have a Korean heart. And I've been accepted into sort of communities in Japan. And I think that is a result of my efforts to not, you know, become Japanese, but to at least be different while respecting their culture. But when I looked up this question on Quora, I actually found the more interesting part was one of the user's answers. And I'm going to read that to you now. And again, I'm trying not to do a voice when I read other things. But as soon as you read something, you get a sense of the voice of the person who did it, which is usually a really big cliche. Uh, so I'm going to just try to read it straight. So this is the first and most upvoted answer on Quora, which actually tells you a little bit about Quora and the people who use it. They are somewhat impressed when I speak some Japanese, but they are always very, that's all caps, always very impressed when I bring up all the samurai stories of the Seigoku Jidai era and bring up Oda Nobunaga, Date Masamune, Sanada Yukimura in casual conversation. They never cease to be amazed by that. One of my best conversations was with a Japanese consulate member. I asked him where his hometown was, and he said Fukui, which is XX kilometers south of Kanazawa. He was afraid the vast majority of foreigners wouldn't know of Fukui. I immediately, all caps, I immediately said, Ah, Shibata Katsuye, Oichi, and the Battle of Shizugatake. And he was flabbergasted, all caps. He was flabbergasted. Absolutely impressed. Now, I think that this person might be confused with other people being impressed with him and he being impressed with himself. Because in this, he has already dropped about five names of samurai stories that he knows. And he tells Japanese people about these Japanese stories and he thinks they're incredibly impressed by it. They are probably somewhat impressed that he has knowledge of Japanese history and story. But I don't think he's really caught on to one significant culture point and is that Japanese people, to be polite, will pretend to be impressed by pretty much everything. And this catches a lot of foreigners when they come to Japan. They don't really get that this is what happens. Because we get a lot of people come to Japan, they start working, they work with Japanese people, and they tell them the most mundane things, and Japanese people are like, oh, that's amazing, that's really impressive, oh, wow, I never knew that. We had a guy who, in his introduction to every new people, would tell those people he was from South Carolina, and would then would go into great detail as to where South Carolina was in relation to the United States. And I can tell you right now, no one gives a shit. No one that he met cared where South Carolina was. And yet, I bet the reaction he received consistently from Japanese people was a great deal of like, oh, I didn't know that. That's really amazing where that is. South Carolina. It is below North Carolina. I fell into this trap as well for a little while, but it didn't take very long for me to figure out that they weren't really impressed. Because I, of course, as you've heard if you've listened to this podcast, 
practiced judo. I've practiced judo my whole life. And so I would tell Japanese people that I practiced judo and they would go, oh, like it was the most amazing thing they had ever heard. And it didn't take long for me to figure out no one gives a shit that I do judo. There is maybe one in a hundred people who probably practiced judo in high school or has some vague interest in judo, but no one cares that I do it. In fact, I'd be willing to say that foreign people are more impressed by the fact that I do judo just because it's not a normal thing for most foreign people to do. So for them, it's unique. But since most people are exposed to judo in high school, I think it's part of gym class. Sometimes you kind of have to take it. And most people don't like it, which is why they quit. I think taking all those elements and putting them together made me realize that no one cares about me doing judo. So I used to tell them about judo and then talk about details and history and things that I had done. And then I realized after they go, oh, that's amazing, I should just move on. Because they're just being polite. Yes, they probably think it's nice that I do a Japanese thing. They think that's interesting, but they don't want to hear about it. They don't care about it. So just like this guy knows a lot about Japanese history, these samurai stories, Japanese people, A, they either already know about it and they probably don't want to hear you tell them about it, or B, they don't know about it, and the reason they don't know about it is because they don't really care about it. So they don't want you to tell them about it. So that's something to be aware of when you start traveling out to other countries, is be aware of reactions. The thing that indicated to me the most that Japanese people just react like this on purpose because it's just kind of part of their culture actually came from watching Japanese TV. When they go, and I've talked about this before, a really common TV show would be to go to a place and eat some food. Now you cannot go to a place and eat some food and not be impressed by the food. That is just not how it works on Japanese TV because then there would be no point. If the food wasn't that good, there would be no point in going to that place and eating the food. After they eat anything on TV, they go, eh, oishi, umai, and a bunch of things like that. So oishi just means delicious, umai means really good. Uh, so that's the one talking about food. And that's it. And they always have these massive reactions. I can tell you the ramen they have in one store, and when they go to another city and have ramen in a different place, the ramen might be better in one of those places, but it's not significantly better to deserve that reaction. So how do you impress Japanese people? Just try to be a really good person. But I think again, that the Japanese part is irrelevant. It applies to universally. Just try to be a good person wherever you go. And I think people will inherently be impressed. So someone sent me a question and it's sort of in my wheelhouse because it is about completely fictional situations at the moment. And the question is, what would happen if humans received an alien transmission telling them to never leave the solar system? How would that affect space exploration? Now, my honest belief is that if aliens sent a message saying, do not leave the solar system, that would actually increase the speed to which we would leave our solar system. I believe that humans are kind of inherently contrary and they don't like restrictions and they don't like being told what to do. Because if you think about any place on earth that is inaccessible, so the top of Mount Everest, the top highest mountain in the world, very difficult to get to, it's a challenge to get there. Uh, basically people would spend most of their time saying you shouldn't go there. Bottom of the ocean, deep jungle in South America, any place humans are told they should not go or cannot go, they then start putting all their drive and effort into going to that place. When countries or groups say, this place is now inaccessible to you, you're not allowed to come here, 
humans then, they start wars. They put all their effort into getting to that place. So I think there is this weird inherent drive. It's one of those things that's driven the human race for a long time to go to places we aren't supposed to be able to go to. I mean, really the question of why did we go to the moon in the first place? Just the moon. We went there. We knew just from observation, there wasn't really anything there. It was a rock floating in space. It's covered in dust. Maybe it would have some resources, but we didn't have the technology to bring those resources back. Why did we go there? We went there because we couldn't. We went there because it was inaccessible. America put all its technology into getting there, first of all, to surpass the Russians. So again, the Russians saying, we went this far, and then the Americans went, well, we went further. But imagine if the Russians had said, you can't go to the moon. You shouldn't go to the moon. You're not going to be able to go to the moon. I bet we would have gotten there six months faster. So a message from an alien coming to Earth saying, you cannot leave the solar system. I bet would actually drive humanity to leave the solar system primarily to find out why we shouldn't. So whether it be because, you know, imminent death exists out there or there's some science fiction anomaly that would ruin us for going out there, who knows? But I think the base curiosity of the human species would make it that we could not resist the urge to go find out what we aren't supposed to see. That curiosity is taking us to this point. It's going to take us either to the future or to our absolute destruction. But it is an inherent drive, and I don't think we can turn it off. Along the lines of the science fiction topic that, that was just presented, I have a friend, we have discussed on several occasions, the increasing lifespan of the human species. So he's talking about primarily when you think about work and retirement. So let's say that now the average person lives to 80 or 90, and that's going to increase to 120, 130, 150. So in a lot of science fiction books, people live to be 150 years old. I believe in Star Trek Next Generation, Jean-Luc Picard was supposed to be 100 to 120 years old. Now he looks older, but he certainly doesn't look like he's 120. He's still a vigorous, healthy man. And that's because the technology has come so far that people can live that long. It does bring into an interesting question about retirement. Currently, our retirement age, most countries, is between 60 and 65. But if you live to 120, you have another 60 years of life to live. And we don't plan our retirement for that. Society's pension systems aren't designed for that. We have not started to plan for an extended life. We plan to work until our 60, and then we retire. And that system was created when our retirement was going to be 10 to 20 years, not 30, 40, 50. So we're going to need twice, three times as much money for a secure retirement if we're going to live that long. This brought me to a secondary idea of when marriage was invented. So if you think, if you go back, like we've always coupled and had tribes and things, and there's, marriage has been a very long tradition. When the concept of marriage was solidified, the average lifespan of a human being was probably somewhere between 40 and 50. People were getting married in their mid to late teens, living their whole life and then dying at 30 to 40 years old. So your marriage only lasted about 20 to 30 years anyway. As we've extended our lifespan now, our marriages have gotten longer, but no one has revisited that concept because... When a marriage used to be 20 years, it has now become 40, 50, maybe even 60 years. And so the actual span of the marriage life has tripled. So I'm proposing maybe we shouldn't do till death do us part. Because 
Till death do us part was only a 20-year period when marriage was invented. We should be thinking about marriage either in 20 or 30-year segments. So you get married, and you get married for the next 20 to 30 years, and then the marriage ends. And if you want, you can get remarried to the same person. If you're still in love, you're still happy, you get married again, that's fine. But because a marriage that lasts 30 to 40 years would be very successful. If you think about marriages now, it's like a 50% divorce rate in, most, in a lot of different countries. Those marriages, those divorces tend to only last a few years anyway. So there's no reason to lock people in to a 50, 60, 70. And again, with these extended lifespans, you know, 60, 70, 80 years of marriage when we know that people change over time. I had a girlfriend in university. We started dating, I think I was 19 and she was 18. And we dated for a really long time. I think we broke up when I was about 25, 26. But that is because the difference between a 19-year-old and a 25-year-old is significant. And the difference between a 25-year-old and a 50-year-old is also significant. You're actually talking about two different individual human beings if you take them and separate them from the time frame. So marriage needs a set time limit or a span for a successful marriage. So let's just take it at 30 years. At the end of the 30-year period, part of that contract of the marriage would be splitting the assets equally. Because your marriage has come to a natural end, there shouldn't be a great deal of animosity even if you don't want to renew that contract. So that would be a prenuptial agreement of some sort that you get X amount of assets, I get X amount of assets, and we go our own ways. Maybe, again, I want to propose to you again, or you want to propose to me, and we get married again, and we try it again for another 30 years. But it would actually make a lot of sense that after 30 years, you find a new partner who would make you happy in a new and different way, because you have a new stage in your life. And I'm thinking about these people who are 100 years old, who, if they hit that lifespan of 150, have another whole marriage that they could enjoy. So you have your early marriage, let's say between 20 and 30, you get married. I actually got married when I was about 34, so I was late, you know, sort of according to my, according to average statistics. But 20 to 30 would be a normal time for a lot of people to get married. And then your marriage is finished between 40 and 50. Then between 40 and 50, you get to get married again to a different person, have a new marriage that's going to take you to about 100. And then that marriage comes to its natural end. Again, hopefully with no animosity. And then you get your final stage of marriage, your last marriage of your life. That is, if you do it right, three successful marriages with three successful partners and everyone is happy. So yes, this extended lifespan actually brings in a lot of questions about the way we live our lives now because most of the plans we have in place now were put in place years and years ago. Like all these things are based off traditions. These traditions are old and thus they did not take into account the increasing lifespan of human beings because they didn't take into account technological advances and improvements in medical sciences. So in the future, if you live to 150 years old, it should be sort of completely normal to have three different marriages and all of those be considered successful. And then you would want your ex-partner, probably you would want to stay friends, but they find a new partner that makes them happy. And now you have this weird to us, really weird extended friend group of people you have spent a whole life with and have gone into a whole new life phase. And I find that strangely optimistic. But more importantly, more realistically right now, you have to plan your retirement for another 10 years beyond whatever they've told you to do because, because there is a very good chance you're going to live 10 to 20 years longer than the average is right now. Plan for the future so that you can continue to listen to this podcast. <laughs>
Fuck, I don't know how to end. The loss of podcast. The loss of podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. Shizugatage. Shizugatake. 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 Shizugatake.